Father, we ask that you would gently but deeply pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Uh, Father, we confess before you that we flatter ourselves too much to detect or hate our own sin. In fact, Father, that um, so often we flatter ourselves so much we don't even know that we are flattering ourselves. And we become deaf to your word. We also confess, Father, how easily the world forms us in its mold, how the world forms our heart without us even realizing it. So, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would use your word in a powerful way in our minds and hearts and lives today, uh, that you would, Father, uh, bring us freedom, uh, the freedom to repent, the freedom to turn to you, the freedom to be gripped by the gospel. And this we ask in Jesus' name, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. So... Some of you are going, I don't know how, how closely you're reading, uh, listening to Nigel read, but some of you are maybe going, whoa, did the Bible just say that God causes disasters in the city? Does, did the Bible just say, did, did, did Nigel just read in the book of Amos that if there's disaster, it's caused by God? Some of you, that might have jumped out at you. I have to confess, um, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. I'm a, I'm a fast reader, and I... Um, I have to really force myself to slow down and look at uh, look at things slowly. Uh, by nature, I'm not like a, a re- I don't read poetry unless I absolutely have to, and uh, I like novels, the type of novels that you grip you and you just want to keep turning the page and turning the page and going and going until they're done, and uh, that's like a really really good thing when you find a novel that grips you and you just want to keep reading and you you don't really pause to notice the prose. Uh, and so, so when I was first reading this text to prepare to preach on it, I'm going, yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder what nothing I'm going to say, what I'm going to say. Whoa, God causes disaster in the city. And then after that, I could hardly pay attention to the rest of the text. And, um, and so we're going to look. Is that what the Bible said? Uh, what exactly does it say? What does it not say? Uh, some of you, when you hear that, um, uh, the text, uh, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Uh, some of us will think, how dare God, I always, or some of us will think, I always knew that God was evil, and that's why I don't believe he exists. <laughs> Others of you might say, I know now why my life sucks, because I always knew that God hated me, <laughs> and there's no hope. I meet people who say that. My life sucks. I think God hates me. And uh, so is that what's going on in the text? Well, let's look. be really helpful for me if you open the Bible yourself, and we spent some time in God's Word in Amos 3. And uh, here's how it begins. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, we're just going to pause here. We have to sort of think about this verse. I don't know how many of you are like me and you, by nature, are very, very fast readers. But um, um, there's different ways that the Bible can talk about hearing. And in this particular case, there's a very particular sense uh, that it's using the word uh, like to hear. Uh, many of us, when we're in conversations, uh, hearing really means we just have an opportunity to catch our breath. Uh, and so that when the other person stops talking, we can continue to talk because what the other person's saying is actually completely and utterly irrelevant. <laughs> we don't really want to listen and understand or hear. We just use the other person speaking is a chance to marshal our thoughts, to catch our breath while we continue to speak. Uh, and some of us, when we listen to people uh, or listen to particular people, we're really only listening to them because we already know that they're stupid and uh, we're listening for examples so we can then once again prove to them that they're actually pretty stupid. Uh, we often listen because we want to mock. We want to listen because we don't respect them, but we just have to endure it. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons and ways that we hear. And in this particular context, it could almost be translated hear to obey. Hear, H-E-A-R, listen, with an attitude that you're listening to obey. So in other words, the, the model underneath it, the image underneath it, if you were to give it a modern cast, would be you discover that you have something very seriously wrong with you. You have a very, very serious medical condition, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor starts to tell you not only what your condition is, but the next two or three or four things, including the medication you have to take and the steps you have to take. 
And uh, unless you're like a complete fool or an idiot, uh, when you're listening to the doctor at that point in time, you're listening to obey. You're listening very, very, very carefully. You don't want to go home to your, your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife or your best friend. And they said, what did the doctor say? And you go, I don't know. I think they said I have something wrong with me. What are you supposed to do? Well, I don't know. <laughs> like that might happen. I mean, many of us go to listen to the doctor and afterwards it's hard to remember what they said. And, and we want to bring somebody along with us. But when the doctor tells us that the, this is very, very, very serious, it's cancer, it's, it's heart, it's some serious liver problem or kidney problem, uh, some serious disease, we listen very, very carefully. And we listen because we want to get better. We listen with the intention that we will remember it and take the steps that we need to obey. And that's the way the text opens today. Now, it's going to eventually talk about some very, very hard and difficult things. And many of us in our culture, we don't really like listening to God in that type of a sense. In fact, for many of us, the way we listen to God is uh, we listen like this, sort of waiting to see if it matches with what we think and with what we agree with. In, in fact, actually, in, uh, if you read books on preaching, there's uh, even a whole range of books that tell you about how to speak to the Bible that you have to answer the so what and now what question. That after people listen, they want to say, they're saying in, in, internally, so what? Or now what? And the interesting thing is that in many of the books that talk about this, they never actually say that you need to challenge the listener. In fact, the books are very, very accurate that for most North Americans, when we hear the Bible, in fact, we are sitting like this. So what? <laughs> or now what? Without ever sort of challenging whether, in fact, that's the, the wise way to listen to God. That maybe a wiser way to listen to God is to listen with the question, how shall we then live? How shall I then live? But it's very common to listen with a type of skeptical cast. And so this text in the Bible begins with a very, very stark challenge to how we listen. It's, uh, it says, once again, if you listen to it, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you or about you. It can be translated the same way, either against or about, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the, out of the land of Egypt. Now, um, in this particular case, um, uh, the, uh, it's really, really important that you notice um, the rest of verse 1. It's going to really, not only do it, does it challenge how we listen, but it, it challenges something else in terms of our whole attitude to the rest of the text. Um, my wife will tell you accurately that I am a very slow learner in terms of marriage. <laughs> Uh, fortunately, we've been married a long time, but I still have a lot to learn about marriage. And one of the hardest lessons for me to learn about marriage, one of the many hard lessons for me to learn about marriage, is that when Louise confronts me, she confronts me because she wants to connect with me more deeply. In fact, in, in most marriages in, in North America, when the wife who loves the husband confronts the husband, the husband often experiences the confrontation as pushing away behavior, but in fact, the wife is confronting because she desires to connect. <laughs> She's trying to grab you by the shirt and say, listen up, I want to connect with you. I'm not pushing you away. I'm shaking you so you come closer. And I'm a really slow learner at that. And it's really important for us to understand Verse 1, not only is it asking us to listen, is it challenging how we listen? It's challenging us to understand that all of the rest that's going to happen, and the way the book of Amos is structured is that the first, it's structured in three sections. And the first section, chapters 1 and 2, uh, it's a series of oracles, and uh, amongst other things, it's showing that God is in fact a judge, is, is, uh, is bigger than the nations, and uh, he's untamed by the nations, and he's going to judge the nations. And he has the right to do it. And uh, the last three chapters of Amos, chapter 7, 8, and 9, are a series of visions 
about Israel and just about life, their series of visions. And in between, chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, it's, it's a, sort of a, a list of, it's God speaking to his people uh, with what's going on in their lives and what they need to deal with. And it's sort of, in a, you know, Old Testament writers by modern standards, they're loopy. <laughs> by that I mean is they, they sort of talk about something and then they talk about something and then they loop back and then they loop over here and then they talk about, you know, it, like it, it can often drive us you know, A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four types of people really nuts because it keeps looping back. It's just the way they talk. But it's the beginning of this God sitting before Israel, what's really going on in their lives, what really is the status of their hearts, how they really look from God's perspective at the level of the heart. And at the very, very start of it, he wants his people to understand that he's confronting them to connect with them. Actually, if uh, I've already sort of missed some points, <laughs> I'm way out of whack with my thing. Well, I'm just going to fix this, and we'll go back to the other the other point. Um, you look at verse one again. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of Egypt. Um, he's saying he's reminding them that um, he's talking to his family. He's reminding them that he's the one who made them his family. They didn't make him their dad. He made them his children. And not only was did they not make him dad, that he made them his children, that he adopted them. And not only did he adopt them, he was the one who rescued them out of bondage and slavery. And it was him... It was God who rescued people, slaves, out of bondage, out of slavery. He rescued them, and he adopts them and enters into a covenant with them. And that's the one who's speaking. Now, I just need to put a couple of things up. Could you put the first point up? This is the the first thing which I I I neglected to say, but I I need to put it up. Um, It's very, very important all the way through this that it's, it's clear that you understand that the Bible is claiming that this is God speaking. Uh, um, as, uh, as I put it up there, the Bible is God's word written down for every age, including our own. The Bible is God's word written down for every age, including our own. Um, Amos isn't saying, I spent some time on the mountaintop with God, and I think this is what God means. <laughs> And Amos isn't saying, I spent some time up there with God, or I've had a vision, and I know this is what uh, he is. Uh, he means, and I'm going to try to say it as best I can. <laughs> no, the claim all the way through this text, it's the claim in, in verse 1, in verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 10, in verse 11, in verse 12, in verse 15, and if you go back and look at verse 1 and at chapter 1 and 2, basically every oracle begins and ends with the statement, this is God saying this, and the Bible is making this claim. You don't have to necessarily accept it. I accept it. I believe it. This is what the Bible teaches. I believe it for a whole range of reasons. But this is the claim that the Bible is making. I have to try to understand it. But it's not Amos trying to understand something that God has said. It's God speaking the words that he wants through Amos in this particular case. And those are the words that we are to hear with the attitude that we desire to obey it. Like listening to a doctor after he's told us something serious. And if you could go up the next point, Andrew, and this is the last part of verse 1. God confronts me to connect with me. In fact, not only here in Amos... It's the way we're to read all of the Bible. All of those parts that make us want to scream. All of those parts that make us angry. All of those parts that make us afraid. Whether it's talking about abortion or about uh, you know, same-sex marriage or whether it's talking about sexual matters or whether it's talking about doctor-assisted suicide, whether it's talking about 
uh, you know, ways to wage war and not to wage war, how it talks about tithing and how it talks about money and how it talks about telling the truth and, and how it talks about heaven and how it talks about hell and, and how it talks about divine power and, and human responsibility and, and whatever it is that's, that can sometimes for us in our culture in terms of we're just thinking how, how harsh it sounds. We can think about how we would hate our friends to hear this because they would think I'm seriously, um, I'm seriously crazy to actually listen to this stuff. It, it can terrify us. We might want to explain it away. We have to understand in every case that God speaks it with the idea and the hope. We won't say so what and now what, but that we'll listen very carefully. And he speaks even his hardest words to connect with us. That's his heart. That's his heart. And for Christians, after the cross, we know that even more deeply. Now, the, the very next part, there, you sort of have to understand, you see, the problem we often have with reading the Bible is the way we, we carry certain images towards the Bible and, and we sort of invent a context which isn't the Bible's context. A, a few years ago, a, a friend of mine who's a pastor, uh, he had a, his, uh, his daughter, his young daughter, she got very, very sick. It ended up being quite serious. They, she went to Emerge, and after Emerge, she went into the department where they were going to deal with her. Or they, In Emerge, they brought the doctor. Anyway, it was very, very serious. Uh, it was actually very, very serious. And, uh, but, but they started to get it under control after, you know, whatever, 12 hours, 24 hours. So after he'd been there about 36 hours, he'd slept there. Uh, he went down to the cafeteria to get a coffee and get something to eat. And while he was in the coffee uh, getting something to eat, uh, he bumped into somebody from his church. He's a pastor. He bumped into somebody from his church. And this person from his church was the head doctor of one of the departments in the hospital. Big cheese. <laughs> Whole floor of the hospital that dealt with certain types of things. He was the head. And he bumps into my friend in the cafeteria, and, and, and the doctor says, you know, I'll just call him Bob. Bob, what are you doing here? And Bob says, well, it's been really touch and go. My, my daughter came in th- like 36 hours ago. It was like emergency, came in by ambulance. It's, whew, it was really hard. And, and he talks and, you know, the doctor was very listening. And he said, well, listen, I'll, I'll come up and I'll visit her with you. So this is not a joke. I'm smiling, but it's not a joke. So they get in the, the end, the elevator. And as they get in the elevator, just before the elevator closes, another, uh, a woman comes in with a, a, a young, a younger man. And uh, the woman says hi to the doctor, and uh, and uh, she said, "Where are you going up?" To you? And he doesn't get off at his floor; he keeps going higher. She says, "Oh, where are you going?" He says, "Well, I'm going up to your floor." She's the head of the department uh, where my friend's daughter is. <laughs> She's the head doctor, and he said, "Well, my uh, my my buddy here, who's my pastor, his, his daughter is in your department. You know, she had this problem, and uh, I'm going up to visit her." So now the head of the department, who hasn't, I mean, there's no reason for, you know, the, 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 the fellow's daughter had only seen interns and stuff, but it was, he had no complaints about his care or anything like that. But now the head of the department looks and looks, oh, he's not just some schlub. <laughs> he's important. A guy who's really high up in the hospital is coming up on my floor to check on one of my patients with his pastor, his friend. So after my friend's friend leaves, the head of the department comes in to examine his daughter, concerned, of course, that she's getting the best care. And in the course of the conversation, he, she says to him, listen, here's my private mobile number. If you have any concern at any time about your care, give me a call. I'll deal with it. So Here's the, this whole context, right? This is what we see in the world all of the time. That if you know the right people, things go, you know, go better. I, I had a knee pain a couple of, you know, a week, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I just self-diagnosed myself and all that. But you know how it is. Like, if I was a Senators player, or if I was in the NFL and I was an important player and I had knee pain, I would see a doctor right away. And if I needed surgery, it would happen the next day, right? I mean, in Canada, there is two-tier medicine. <laughs> Like, we never think about it, but the star player on an NHL team does not have to wait three months to see a specialist. Why? Because 
he's the star player on the Maple Leafs. He's the star player in the Canucks. He's the star player on the, uh, on the Ottawa Senators. The whole season depends upon him. He doesn't have to wait an extra three months after he finally sees the specialist to finally get an ultrasound. And then after that, wait two months to see the specialist again. And after that, wait four months to see a doctor. Right? It's funny. We don't even think about the fact that, okay, my, my aunt has to wait a year for surgery but the star player of the Maple Leafs is operated on the next day. And that's partially because in our culture and just in our human flesh, we understand that if you're important and you matter, the rules are different. Isn't that what we think? So in that context, listen to, listen to verses 1 and 2 again. And, and when you, within this context, you're going to understand the shock of verse 2. And many of us are shocked with verse 2, the second part of verse 2, for a different reason, but it's because we haven't grasped something about our heart and about how we think the world works. Listen to verse 1 and 2 again. So hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. That's not how the world works. It must have been a, I mean, for us, it's a bit of a shock because we maybe wonder if it's a sadomasochistic type of thing or what's going on. But the biggest shock is, the biggest shock is that's not how the, you know, oh, you're a really important person, I've now discovered, because you know the head of another department, therefore, I am not going to help you. <laughs> no, no, that's not how it works. Therefore, <laughs> I mean, not, my, my friend never even, you know, he, this is, wouldn't have been the way it worked, but imagine that he had gone in, if he was another type of person, and he had to take his daughter into an emergency, and it turns out that her problem was exactly, he, she, his daughter was going to go to the floor where the guy from his church was, and aren't there many of us who would want to say as we're in an emergency, they say, uh, just so you know, your boss, your boss is boss, is boss, is boss, is my best friend. And I, I think I've been waiting too long. Did I, did I just tell you again? Like you want, I have his personal mobile number. I don't have to go through a secretary. And that's your boss's boss's boss. We want special treatment. And so what's going to be going on, one of the big charges and one of the ways to understand the rest of chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and even the visions is a particular human sin. And it's a sin of presumption. If you could put it up, Andrew, that would be very helpful. Presumption is the perennial counterfeit to saving faith. Presumption is the perennial substitute to saving faith. And uh, we presume that we will be treated differently. We have a sense of entitlement, a sense of self-satisfaction. We are self-congratulatory. We are self-righteous, self-justifying. We feel entitled. We feel special. We believe that the rules do not apply to us in the same way that they apply to other people in certain regards. And it, it, it is very, very powerful in, in, in society and culture. Like, I'll just, here's something which, I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you who've been in economics, you know this. Did you know that if we were to go back a 100 years ago, and you had a choice of living in Canada or Argentina, you know where most rational people would have chosen? Argentina. In the first three decades of the 20th century, Argentina was considerably wealthier, more prosperous, more stable than Canada. Maybe not more stable, but richer. In fact, in the early part, the first three decades of the 20th century, Argentina, by per capita, was the 10th richest nation on the planet. Tenth richest. If you were looking in terms of economic opportunities in 1916, you would choose Argentina over Canada and over Australia or over New Zealand. That over most nations. It was one of the most prosperous nations on the planet. Now in terms of prosperity, it's in the bottom half. Why is it that we in Canada don't think that that could happen to us? Why is it that we think that we can make any type of political decision or economic decision or economic policy 
and that what happened to Argentina can't happen to us. Why is it that we think that in our culture? Is there some divine right that means that just because we're Canadians that we will always be prosperous and safe and free? Well, that's BS. You don't have to zip that out, right? I just use the letters, right? But it's presumptuous. And, and how presumptuous is it to listen to God's word and go, so what? Okay, now what? I'm, I, I just woke up one morning with a sore knee. I don't know what it was, a virus? Like, it just, you just wake up with it one day. And, and, and all of us, either ourselves or have family members, is that one day all of a sudden there's a, something really bad going on physically. We can be felled by this tiniest little microbe. And yet we presume as if we are the judges of God and the judges of nations and the judges of people in the center of the universe. And it can mask in religious and social and spiritual forms. It doesn't matter how I live, I speak in tongues. I'm spiritually sophisticated and more advanced than other people because I speak in tongues. I'm more advanced than people because I use the Book of Common Prayer. I'm more advanced than people because I I know how to say Hail Mary full of grace. I'm more advanced than other people because I'm reformed. I'm more advanced and better than other people because I, I don't know, you just start to fill in the blanks because I'm Methodist, because I'm Wesleyan, because I'm Manic, because I'm whatever. That it's, it's not faith, it's not a relationship. We're not connected to God, we're presuming upon God. We're acting and thinking as if we are somehow entitled, and we give ourselves a pass on thing after thing after thing after thing. <laughs> so, to understand the text, we've only gotten into verse 2. Uh, just, just so you know, at this rate, there's 15 verses. This is going to be a three-and-a-half-hour-long sermon. <laughs> We're going to go through a bit quicker. But it's, it's a really important beginning to the text, right? Is this perennial danger about presumption. And I'm going to put up uh, two other texts. Actually, um, where am I in my notes? Always dangerous. So the, um, uh, so he, um, actually, Andrew, could you put up the, um, no, no, we're going to go to verses three to eight, sorry. So, so here's the, the thing then. Um, the, um, I told you I'm a really fast reader, and I, I sometimes skip over things. And I have to confess that when I, when I read the text for the first time, I, I didn't notice. See, one, one of the things that happens is when you read the text really, really, really quickly, and you have to often read the Old Testament in particular very slowly and notice a very subtle change that it makes in the text. And that's probably one of the reasons why I often, buy, in my own personal devotions, because I, I, I read fairly quickly, even in my personal devotions, I, I probably don't get as much out of it as I should. I, I should probably be a slower reader. Those of you who are slow readers, you probably get more out of the Bible than I do many times. But the Bible does something very, very subtle. It's, it's challenging us about what God's word is. It challenges us about the danger of presumption. And then it's going to do something else that talks about disaster, it sounds very, very judgmental, but it's actually very, very, very open-ended in, its, in terms of how it, begin, it, it starts to go into the problem that the Israelites are facing. Now, look, read with me with verses 3 to 8, and then I'll, you probably won't notice it. I'll go back and show you what it means. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall on a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? That's a really scary verse we're going to look at in a moment. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Now, Here's the very, very subtle thing in the text, but it's really, really very important, and we're going to spend just a minute or two on it to try to help you see it. But, um, you know, it's this sort of little thing that leads you to the shocking conclusion. Can two walk, you know, about the traps, about the roaring, about the the, the disaster? Whoa, God's causing disaster in the city. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. 
But if you'll notice, look at verses 4, 5, and 6. There's always a pair in every case. Verse 4, there's a pair around uh, lions roaring. In verse 5, there's a pair around uh, traps. In, in verse 6, there's a, a pair around fighting and about the disaster to a city. But in verse 3, it says, to two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. But there's no second bit. And that's because, as Amos is going to get into the rest of the book, the challenge is for the listener to complete the couplet. If you don't listen to God's in words of obedience, if you don't capture the fact, if the fact that God's going to punish you only angers you, it doesn't make you think that you're self-entitled, that you're presumptuous, that you're self-righteous, that you're self-satisfied, that you're self-congratulatory. It doesn't make you think of any of those things. All it does is make you mad. Then there will be one second part to the couplet. And the couplet will go, it will begin to two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. Can two people live together after they have divorced? Or uh, can two people walk together when one punches the other in the face? Or can two walk together when one spends all of his time abusing the other person? Or can two walk together when one person wants to walk away and run away? Is that how it's going to finish? Or is it going to finish? Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Cannot two walk together when there has been repentance? Like, Amos intentionally didn't complete the couplet because he says, how you listen to the rest of the book will determine what the second part should be. Now, here we go. Just before we go on, um, Andrew, could you put up a scripture text? This is a really good verse to memorize in life, folks. It's from the book of Ezekiel, and you'll notice there's a funny thing at the end because there's three verses almost identical in wording, and I had to look at I ended up picking this wording, but if you want to look it up, all three of them are very, very similar wording. Same idea. For those of you who are old Anglicans, it's actually a really important part of Anglican spirituality because it's a key part of morning and evening prayer to say a version of this verse every time you do the daily offices. God takes no delight in death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live. It's actually part of the basic structure of Anglican Bible reading as it was formulated by the English reformers. But could you say this text with me? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Just think of this. When Jesus died on the cross, he died between two thieves. And if you look at all the accounts of his death upon the cross, The day begins with both thieves abusing Jesus. But sometime during the day, one of the thieves is convicted and stops abusing Jesus. And he eventually turns and says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus died between two thieves with very different destinies. The thief, who is the penitent, who we will see in heaven if we have given our lives to Jesus, that thief reminds us that we should never despair, that no person is so far from God that repentance is not an option. The penitent thief reminds us that no human being should despair, nor should we despair in sharing the gospel with any human being. And the thief that began the day and ended the day abusing Jesus reminds us that nobody should presume. No one should presume. Andrew, if you could put up uh, uh, A. Here's just sort of two things to pause before we just bring the, the sermon to a close. We have a bit, of, a bit to go still. But dear Lord, please deliver me from all traces of presumption entitlement, and self-satisfaction. Instead, by your grace, make me a disciple of Jesus gripped by the gospel, living for your glory. Like for many of us, this is the challenge, that entitlement and presumption slip into our lives without realizing it. And we're redeemed, we're saved by grace, but our walk with Jesus is deeply 
burdened and broken and compromised because we aren't growing in holiness, we're growing in presumption, self-satisfaction and entitlement. And here's the second thing. Andrew, if you could put up the second prayer. Many of us read the Bible with a so what, now what attitude. And this text is challenging us to, to consider praying a prayer like this. If you don't have time to write it down, it'll be on the webpage. Uh, well, maybe a little bit, have to wait a little bit because Shirley's on hol- holidays, but it will go on the webpage. Uh, or you can email me. Dear Lord, please deliver me from all vain, false, and self-congratulatory listening to your word. Please make me a disciple of Jesus, gripped by the gospel, who is learning to listen to your word humbly, deeply, obediently, and well, so that I will live for your glory. Now, some of you are saying, George, you can't finish the sermon now without dealing with disaster in the city. George, you just can't. You can't, you can't, you can't. You can't sort of just say, okay, well, my time is up. Uh, let's just stop and go, whoa, you go, whoa, 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 George, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Um, now, we're going to have, we are, I, I, here's, here's the thing. I'm going to say one very important thing about this text, and we're going to talk about it more next week because there's the same type of idea, only it, it actually about half of chapter four has the similar idea, so I'm going to talk about it more next week. But I'm going to just give you one analogy uh, to help you understand the problem we have when we hear it. So the big problem we have when we hear it is we think of, uh, the, we think of a, a different context. We think of a context of an innocent person has something bad happen to them. I, I know some people, that if they hear this text all by itself, they say, well, my, my life has been one disaster after another, and I've always known that God hates me. Now I really know that he really does hate me, and that's not the way to understand it. I want you to think of the Kameshi affair. I don't know if I pronounced his name right. The Kameshi affair on C- in CBC. It was a disaster for the CBC, and it was a disaster for Kameshi. But what type of disaster was it? And I, I have to be careful. You know, it's funny. Sometimes people tell me, why do you always use examples from other countries and don't use Canadian examples. And one of the reasons is whenever I use Canadian examples, I get so much pushback from some people. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to do it. And I, I, and here's the thing. If, if the press is to be believed, and I, I, so I have to just a bit of a caveat. And I, I've been in the press, and I know that the press doesn't always get things right. There's been a trail and everything like that. But it appears as if this man sexually harassed quite a few women over quite a long period of time and the system in the CBC failed and he was able to get away with it. And eventually, somebody had the courage to go to the press. A lot of this came out and it was, what was it for him? A disaster. Isn't that a good word for it? What was it for the CBC? It was a disaster. Now, is it a disaster for you and me? Well, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the outcome of the case and all of that, and I know there's going to be civil suits and all of that, but you see, here's the thing. Here's the thing about this text. Here's the context for the text. Remember, we've already got, begun to get to the context about this, the problem of presumption, the problem of people listening to God with a so-what attitude and all of that type of thing. How did the people in authority listen to the woman who had complaints? Did they listen well? They had authority to stop it. Did they stop it? No, they didn't. Did Kameshi? He didn't. And it's not a disaster on one hand. It's a disaster for an unpenitent wrongdoer who's getting away with terrible things. When all of a sudden, the day of reckoning comes... And he can't get away from prospering, from doing terrible things. But if you have an unpenitent heart, and you've been living off the fruit of doing evil, and you are presumptuous, and finally the day of reckoning comes, it is a disaster. But it's not a disaster, is it? Something approaching justice begins to happen. In this text, Amos has used chapter 1 and chapter 2 to say, listen, nations think that God is completely and utterly irrelevant and that at best 
He's a kindly, doddering old grandfather who's asleep in his chair, not noticing what's going on. Okay, the nations might think that God is tame, but Amos has spent chapter 1 and 2 establishing that God is bigger than the nations, that God will judge the nations, that the nations might say what is right and wrong, but at the end of the day, there is a real right and there is a real wrong, and they will be judged. And not only will individuals be judged, but social structures will be judged. And for people who write till the end, continue to maintain that God is tame and that they really are God and they have gotten his job. When judgment comes, it is a disaster. But Amos is trying to us understand that God is bigger than the nations. He is bigger than social structures. That he is bigger than Canada. He's bigger than the CBC. He's bigger than Hollywood. He's bigger than the education elites. He is bigger than the United Nations. He is bigger than NATO. He's bigger than the United States. He is bigger. And that if in many cases we have to wait until death before there is judgment and justice, it will come. God's lack of action is mercy in the hope of repentance not agreement that he is doddering, incompetent, disinterested, or tamed. He's none of those things. He is the roaring lion. Let's just... um, I want to read the rest of the text, and I I see the time, uh, but I just want to say a couple of other things about the rest of the text. Um, Let's read verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion is roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? This that last part. I'm not going to talk about this much other than to say this is terrifying because this is a, a word to us. If we hear God's word, There is an obligation for us to have the courage to speak a word of God's word when it disagrees with our culture. And he goes on to say, verse 9, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your stronghold shall be plundered. Remember, Israel was destroyed in 722 B.C. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground, and I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Andrew, if you could put up the first, the next point, please. Just very in brief. Um, we read this now, um, listening to it, knowing that the, you know, in the old westerns in the 50s, you could tell who the good guys and the bad guys were if they wore a white hat or a black hat. Um, if you watch the original Star Trek, you know that people with a certain color shirt are going to die, um, and people with a certain color shirt are going to live. And uh, so we sometimes read the Old Testament this way. Uh, but the first thing, just very briefly, is if you put up the point, Andrew, social structures, customs, and institutions can be powerful forces leading me away from saving faith in Jesus. And uh, that's, that's the point here. Uh, and the hard part about the point is, because we're looking at it like they're wearing the right, the wrong color shirt or they're wearing the, the wrong color hat, but you have to think about it for a second. These guys are Canadians. They're spiritual, not religious. They have many altars. They're not hung up on just one way to God. They're not hung up with just one way or just one word from God. They're not hung up with these things. They're spiritual and they're not religious. And they practice their religion in a way that it, it doesn't sort of bother other type of people. And there can be as many altars as you want. And when it talks about winter house and summer house, 
you know, isn't it usually that in the Citizen or the National Post or the Globe and Mail, don't they usually have the rich and the famous and the powerful at little benefit types of things? And and don't they have homes that they sort of go and they take you through? And, and don't all the magazines talk to you about the most uh, spectacular houses and all of that type of thing? And don't they always do it in such a way that it's a fawning type of thing about the rich and the powerful? And don't they have things that are made out of ivory? Isn't that just a sense that you, isn't that just telling you that you're not just a, you know, you're not just some poor schlub who uh, thinks that going to McDonald's and having a Big Mac is the height of a uh, haute cuisine, but you know the right types of restaurants, you know the right types of things to eat, you know the right way to dress, you know that when you can wear brown shoes, and you know when you can wear the, the type of sandals you should have. You, have. you understand that if you see somebody walking down the street, you can tell whether that's a good purse or a bad purse, or whether the watch matters. And that's why you have the fancy magazines with all of those types of things. And 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 if just, whoa, 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 don't, don't read it with, Read it, it's talking about Canada. Strongholds is another word for elites. Fawning descriptions of the new heads of universities. Fawning descriptions of the new chief of staff for the prime minister. Fawning descriptions of the coolest restaurants. The sign that you have just exquisite taste. Not part of the hoi polloi. It's written in the Citizen and the National Post and the Globe and Mail and put on television and Twitter and Facebook so that those of us in the hoi polloi know what matters. And these social structures, the strongholds, have led to presumption and people being away from God. And, um, and one other thing, actually, Andrew, if you could put up the point five. I don't really have time to describe this, but it's, I'm just going to put it up there. The sacrificial death of Jesus upon the cross is God's subversive fulfillment of idolatry. The sacrificial death of Jesus upon the cross is God's subversive fulfillment of idolatry. Why is it subversive fulfillment? It's subversive because This whole text is just saying, listen, you trust in your possessions. You trust in your, you trust in all of these types of things. You, they're they're all going to fail. They're all going to fail. And, but at the same time, you know, when we, we have, we have a sense that there is a better. We have a sense that there is, that, you know, it might get confused by just taste and looking down our noses at people who eat Big Macs and, um, you know, or just go to Tim Hortons and don't, can't tell what, you know, they don't know the right type of coffee or, you know, even worse, they go somewhere even worse than Tim Hortons. Like, you know, we have this sense that there is something better. We have this something that there is something above us. We have this sense that there is some type of, 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 of there's some type of a quest that we should be on. And, and, and on, on one hand, the Bible is going to completely and utterly Keep knocking everything out. He's gonna, it's gonna keep saying this is the wrong path. This is the wrong path. This isn't something you can stand on. It's gonna subvert it. It's gonna critique it. It's gonna knock it down. But at the same time, it's trying to knock all these down. It's trying to confront us and knock these things down because there is in fact a fulfillment that comes from God. That if we lose our self-congratulation and our self-justification and our self-righteousness, that we can actually look to a power that comes from God where God justifies and God makes righteous and God makes right and he does it purely and utterly as gift and as grace. I had a friend come up to me this week just on, on Friday and um, he described himself as spiritual, not religious. He described himself as a nun and uh, he said, so, uh, what are you going to talk about this uh, Sunday? Are you going to set everybody right? Uh, show, you know, are you going to set everybody right on Sunday? Uh, and I said, uh, no, that's not what I'm going to do. You know, you sort of misunderstand me. Uh, I almost said his name. I'll call him Bob. Uh, you know, the Christian faith is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I'm just going to, I'm a beggar. I'm going to tell people where to find bread. That's my hope. And he said, well, that's a clever line. Although I prefer to say it's the blind leading the blind. <laughs> and I say, um, 
Well, that's a pretty good line too, and I acknowledge that I'm blind. I'm a blind man telling other blind people about the one who can make them see. And it's not me. I said, you know, I happen to know that this guy both claims to be spiritual, not religious. He was also a huge fan of Christopher Hitchens. I said, you know, Bob, Christopher Hitchens and Christians agree on many, many, many things. I said, you know, one thing I know you've puzzled about is the fact that Christopher Hitchens mocked people like yourself who are spiritual, not religious. And I and Christians agree that we're blind, that the finite cannot possibly know the infinite. But what if the infinite speaks to the finite in words that the finite can understand? And what if the infinite comes and acts for the finite so the finite can belong to God? I make no claim that I can see. All I can do is say, there is one who can make you see. There is a beggar. There is, there is a food that God will freely give to beggars. And do the, final, the first of the final two prayers. Many of us have to leave here praying, Dear Lord, please make me a disciple of Jesus, gripped by the gospel, who has a heart for the world, not a heart formed by the world so that I will daily live for your glory. And the final one, and with this, could you all stand, please? The challenge of the text for many people is this prayer. I mean, the other three prayers are all really important challenges to us. Uh, But this is a conversion prayer. For many of you, if you wonder how to give your life to Jesus, and maybe you feel under conviction, this is how you give your life to Jesus um, you know, my words aren't magic or special. I just try to take this text and form it in terms of a way that if you believe that it's time for you because you haven't been actually walking with God or connected with God, you've just been presumptuous. And the time is to come to leave presumption and to, to enter into saving faith. I've just tried to put it into words. And uh, I'm going to ask us all to close by saying this prayer together. For those of us who are Christians, it's like saying the Pledge of Allegiance in the States. You're already an American, but it can sometimes just be so good. Canada doesn't have anything like it. It must be just sometimes so good just to remember once again the start of the Christian life prayer and what you're standing on, what you're not standing on, and how you're gripped. And for some of us here in the room, maybe this will be the the prayer that begins your Christian life. And if, if you haven't begun the Christian life, I urge you to pray this prayer out loud, saying to God, this is me. This is, this, I want this to be me. Let's pray it together. Dear Lord, I turn from the hopes of this world, from all idolatry, and from all presumption. I turn to you. I turn to Jesus Christ crucified, your Son and my Savior. I open myself unreservedly to the Holy Spirit. Please make me a disciple of Jesus, gripped by the gospel, living for your glory. Thank you. Amen. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Make us disciples of Jesus, gripped by the gospel, living for your glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.